Hi, I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about coronavirus protest arrests. Congressman Louis Gohmert joins me to talk about progress in reopening America and Harvard attacks homeschooling. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Welcome to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Well, we are still in the middle of our coronavirus shutdown, and I have frequently shared some stories related to the way that I think that we are over-regulating. We have very strident regulations in various portions of portions of the country, from governors, mayors, and counties, um, and really restricting movement and freedom. And we also have conduct on the part of some officials in enforcing these regulations that is just kind of breathtaking. And I'm, I almost hate to share this story because it's from the great state of Texas. And we always think we're kind of the leaders of liberty. We're the, the ones in Texas that really understand the importance of personal liberty but a story about how the coronavirus regulations are continuing to inspire some members of police departments, uh, some people in authority, to engage in behavior that is just, it, you're kind of surprised by it and it just seems, uh, it seems unnecessary and unwise. So in Laredo, Texas, the city of Laredo, Texas, they are under shutdown as most places are, meaning businesses are non-essential have to be closed. But as we're all discovering, many people cannot afford to remain closed. They need to have income. So two women in Laredo, Texas, who normally work at their beauty salon, were running a home salon. They were doing nails, you know, doing manicures, and they were doing uh, eyelashes, which I'm not even sure what that means. I guess putting on fake eyelashes. But in any case, these two women were doing this out of their home. If you can believe this, the Laredo police engaged in a sting operation. They went undercover, officers went undercover to the house to pretend they wanted their eyelashes and fingernails done. And when they were let inside and they started to get whatever the services were, uh, the two women running this in their home were arrested. This was Anna Isabel Castro Garcia, age 31, and Brenda Stephanie Mata, age 20. So these are young women who are actually trying to keep their business going but an undercover sting, I, and I just have to say, I would think those officers could think of something better to do with their time than do un go undercover after a bunch of people trying to keep their business running. Uh, another quick story was out of uh, Raleigh. This is kind of amazing what the outcome was, but there was a protest in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it was about basically the shutdown, trying to tell the governor, open the state, we don't want to shut down anymore. And so there was a woman who was in a parking lot, part of the shutdown uh, protest, and she was arrested. And she wouldn't move when she was told, okay, there's nothing else in the parking lot. She's not hurting anybody, but she was arrested. And someone tweeted, what part of the governor's order did she violate? What part of the, of, what, of the governor's order was violated here? And the Raleigh police actually tweeted out, protesting is a non-essential activity. I don't know about that. They had 
a lot of legal opinion in the article basically saying, well, you don't lose all your constitutional rights, even in an emergency, but you have to obey the officer, you know, instructions of an officer. I, I actually, I don't really, I think all these will be dropped. I don't think these will actually be prosecuted. We have in Dallas a, a salon owner who just saying, I'm not closing down. She got an order from our county judge here in Dallas to close down. She very dramatically and on video tore it up, said she's going to stay open. That's going to ahead. And last one I'll share in this first five, I have to say, I'm kind of enjoying the spirit of people who are just, they sense there's something wrong with this shutdown. It's too extreme. It is not the only way to handle this. And they are concerned about it, not just America's economy nationally, which they should be concerned about, but their own livelihoods, their ability to earn money, put food on the table, feed their families, and they're just had enough. But the last story, uh, and there are plenty more I could tell you, I may get to some more later, but the last one was out in California, Governor Newsom, uh, which is, a, that was called the Socialist Republic of California, but he had a stay-home order, and I guess it was a really, really hot day uh, in Southern California, um, and and they, you know, you're not supposed to go to the beaches, even though, isn't it? true, I think, that sunlight actually kills the virus. But in any case, um, at Orange County, at Newport Beach, people uh, flocked to the beach anyway, and there were just so many people. What could they do about it? They just couldn't do a darn thing. So I have to say, I will continue working. We are, did a great show this past Monday, a couple days ago, about other medical experts are talking about different ways we could be approaching this problem instead of this coronavirus instead of the pretty massive shutdowns that we are dealing with. Um, but so I and I appreciate we had an opportunity to talk through those. Um, and I actually am enjoying the spirit of America just saying, you know, we want to work. What a great thing to protest for. We want to work. Those have to be Republicans protesting. And that, my friends, is today's first five. I mentioned at the start of the show, we have Congressman Louis Gohmert joining us. He represents, I always think it's really symbolic, Congressman Gohmert represents Congressional District 1 in Texas. He's been, he's a member of Congress. He's, uh, you know, very beloved by conservatives. Um, he's served in Congress since 2005. Uh, he's a, a graduate of Texas A&M. He received an Army scholarship and a BA in history. Um, he served as class president there. He has Juris Doctor's Law degree from Baylor in Waco, where he was class president there too. He served as U.S. Army Judge Advocate General's Corps, JAG Corps, at Fort Benning, Georgia from 78 to 82. He's also served as a state district court judge in Texas. And um, he was also appointed the te to, by Texas Governor Rick Perry to fill a vacancy as Chief Justice on the Texas Supreme Court uh, in 2003. But he is. The most important job he's ever had is, in my opinion, is he's now representing Texas in Washington, D.C. Hello, Congressman Gohmert. Hey, Debbie. It's great to be with you. Of course, father and husband are pretty important. <laughs> they might be at the top. Okay, I would. I totally agree. Don't tell your wife I said that. No, just kidding. I, <laughs> I think you have a wonderful family. And yes, father and husband are very, very important things. But honestly, in this time when there's so much fear running around Washington, so much fear about the virus and the handling of it, and on our, on my side of the aisle, our side of the aisle, concern about what the breakdown, the shutdown of the American economy is going to do to our country. I mean, it's going to do impact the fall election. So. Tell me about first, Congressman Gomer, just starting out in Washington, D.C., do you get a sense among the Republicans you are in touch with, are people concerned about how slowly we're trying to reopen the economy or how are, how are your colleagues feeling about what we're doing to reopen America? 
I think it's a big majority are extremely concerned that if we don't get things going again, we're going to end up um, not being able to. We'll bring down the country. If it, We've never done this before. Shut down the country. Uh, I mean, you go back to the pandemic, uh, the turn of the last century, uh, that uh, was tragic. Over 670,000 or so precious lives lost. But I can't help but wonder if maybe um, this is the first time in American history where we've allowed the federal government to shut things down because maybe this is the first time in American history they have been so indoctrinated through schools and media that uh, it's the first time people would have put up with it. I've reflected on the founders, uh, guys that, as Dennis Miller said, were so upset over attacks on their breakfast drink, <laughs> they went and risked being shot burglarizing a ship and and trashing their cargo. Uh, um, you think they would have reacted well if England had said, we're shutting everybody's business down for your own good uh, because there's a disease we want to protect you from. Uh, I don't think those guys that risk their lives over attacks on their breakfast drink would have taken well to being told you can no longer make a living will get you by through government subsidies. So it is a very dangerous time. And we we do want to take the coronavirus very seriously. And there are great advances, as I love this about America, great advances in trying to deal with this issue from a scientific standpoint. And that's fabulous. And there are new things that will be coming out uh, in the near future, I feel sure, that are going to make it uh, easier to deal with these issues. But uh, there is great concern. Uh, the Democrats feel like uh, they have, you know, they couldn't do it through impeachment, through the Russia hoax, through the Ukraine hoax. But now, I mean, some of them have uh, paid lip service to this may be the one that we can use to bring down President Trump, or at least defeat him in November. So it's uh, it's being seen politically by a lot of people and not just uh, to save Americans. Gee, this is the chance to bring down Donald Trump. Congressman Gilbert, I could not agree more. That was actually a great segue to my next question. I've been saying for weeks that the Democrats, it's always wrong to say that the virus is a hoax because the virus is real. It's horrible. People are suffering and, well, and you know we want to do everything we can to take care of it. You betcha. But the policy choices we made to respond to it, they are being milked and exploited by the left in this country to harm the economy, to harm the present, to grow government, to end up where you have people with, this is the, the Democrats dream, a growing dependency class, people waiting for a check from Washington. I mean, so you share, I wanna have you talk more about the, your, your sense of how the Democrats are exploiting this crisis. Well, it, it's <laughs> the fact that, that Pelosi would sit on the bill for two weeks just to keep people's businesses afloat during this tragic time. And it is tragic. The loss of any life, the suffering that's gone with the coronavirus is tragic. And that leads us to other things that need to be done about China. So I'm hearing people who, even Democrats that have been uh, 
nothing but about nothing but Russia, Russia, Russia. They're going, you know, we really do need to deal with this, uh, uh, our reliance for critical things on China, uh, not to the standpoint that they would go back and uh, remove some of the bills they've passed in the House putting off limits areas where we get rare earth elements so that we have to rely on China, which has really a monopoly in so many ways on so many products. Um, we're about 85%. I was hearing a briefing on China, our Chinese reliance uh, for medication, about 85% for the ingredients of our most important medications. Uh, that's all got to change. Now, one of the things I'm hopeful about is that maybe this wasn't the death nail, but it was a wake up call that uh, we need to wake up because China has talked about for decades and Mike Pillsbury's talked about this behind the scenes. Look, we know we'll never catch up to the United States. You're so far ahead of us. You have so much more going for you, but you know, we'll make noise and we'll try. Uh, no, the whole time they were planning on bringing us to our knees. And uh, we've gotten indications with that on medication. Uh, gee, maybe we ought to just cut out the United States medication. Uh, that, that wakes up Republicans and Democrats. Everybody understands that is a threat. Uh, some may get to the point eventually that it seems to be an economic uh, um, act of war but it is a threat to American lives. It's very serious. And we're starting to hear a little more of that from Democrats. After Pelosi delayed that bill for two weeks, we had a number of Democrats saying, you know what, this isn't good for America. We got too many people that either need to start their businesses back up or they need to be able to get this loan. So I'm hoping it's gonna make a difference on both sides of the aisle in the end. I would love that idea. Your particular point about medications, we've uh, on this show, we've had Rosemary Gibson, who wrote the China RX book, and other people talking about our dependency on China for medications. And one thing she points out, and I think you're alluding to it too, is China intentionally cornered the market on production of antibiotics. It wasn't like it just kind of naturally occurred through a series of events and deals. It was a, as people look back at it now, it was an intentional cornering of the market to where American manufacturers could not compete for the to create these uh, pharmaceuticals at the same prices. China can produce things cheaper, so people want, and, and we just kind of went along with that, not realizing we were getting becoming uh, so dependent on China. So I really hope there was a major turning of the corner on um, on dealing with China and medications. I really do. Well, Debbie, could I also make another point uh, on? Um, not only have we grown in our reliance on China, but there are so many financial entities that are looking more and more to China. And of course, uh, you've got, uh, uh, you know, Joe Biden's family connection through his son, the money that he's made off of China. Uh, so many ways that China has corrupted uh, our universities. Uh, hopefully there'll be a move that China can no longer uh, uh, participate in the results of testing on our college campuses. But yeah. one, one breathtaking thing right now, we have billions of dollars of federal employees' money 
in what's called the thrift savings account. And and I know at one time there was a grand and glorious retirement package for for members of Congress back, uh, but somewhere around mid early 80s that was changed. So members of Congress have the same retirement as every other federal employee. But all of that money that we set aside, all of that's in the thrift savings program. And the board, I believe there are five, the majority of the board are still Obama appointees. Uh, President Trump has three to, to get the majority, but they have not been put in place. And the Democrat majority of the board governing the thrift savings account, that every all federal workers, in, in well, retirement, uh, they have made a move. They're going to try to invest uh, a, a huge amount of money in Chinese companies, including those that make uh, their defense weapons and all kinds of things. These clowns are about to, if unless the president's able to stop them, they're about to invest federal retirement money in the Chinese government companies that are at war with us or could someday be at war with us. We're going to use our money to fund uh, enemy actions against us. That is insane. But hopefully President Trump will get his people in and stop it. But the problem is they could do that any day. They've set it up where they could make that investment any day. Just outrageous. It is outrageous, and I, I, we, I could not agree more. And it's an astonishing thing, too. I've heard people, in fact, Gordon Chang said this on my show fairly recently, that all the time we invest more and more, whether the program you're talking about, other ways we invest in China, we really are enabling the Chinese Communist Party and its increasing tyranny that they, you know, America thought, whatever it was, 20 years ago that China was going to open up. And if we invested more, we would help them see the beauty of freedom and free markets. And we kind of help them loosen the stranglehold of the Chinese Communist Party and the people. But actually, that hasn't happened. And the more money we invest in China, the more we enable their very right. repressive, tyrannical government to grow. It's, it's so right. And some people on the other side of the aisle love to use the R word. They scream racist. This is mm -hmm. not a racist matter uh, with regard particularly to the investment. Uh, this is a matter of China being the one country that uh, would be invested in if it goes through that doesn't allow information about the financial strength of these companies, where their money comes from. They don't allow any of the things that are required by Wall Street before you can make an investment like this. So it isn't racist at all. It's a matter of bookkeeping. We're prejudiced against investing in companies that don't allow us to know what their quarterly reports are like we we know in the u.s and they're the one big country that doesn't allow that we should never be investing where we can't know the background and and the earnings and the losses all of these kind of things what are they investing in uh, so that's the explanation is why we ought to stop that until we get some kind of agreement with China and can make sure it's an enforceable agreement. Couldn't agree more. I want to go back to coronavirus while I'm thinking about this whole issue in Washington because I feel like 
when the virus first came on the scene to our awareness, we chose a policy that was designed to protect Americans. We did not want more people infected. People didn't know how bad it was. They didn't realize whether or not there was uh, where exactly it came from, whether it came from a bioweapons lab or the wet markets. They were concerned about what was built into the virus. But here we are, I don't even know how many weeks you count, five, six, seven, eight weeks later, and more and more data are now available that show that the, the lethality rate is actually low. I mean, the people who actually pass on from it. Mm -hmm. And so there are people like, uh, I've mentioned the show, Dr. Katz from Yale, who's been saying we should have done this vertical interdiction, protect the susceptible, let everybody else go free. We've had Dr. Scott Atlas from Stanford, who's gone through making the same points. We've had Dr. Um, I think it's Yadonis from Stanford. And so my point is, do you think any of those experts who are now saying, okay, we're not going to condemn anyone for what we, the policy decisions we first made at, at the start, but here we are now. Can we change course? Do you think any of those people are getting President Trump's ear or his team's ear where he might be willing to change course in America and, and pull back based on the idea we didn't have to crack down so hard to start with? Well, I'm not sure the extent to which he's hearing from doctors like you mentioned that I think deserve to be heard. Uh, it's one of the things, and uh, it, it's really tragic, in uh, the book Born Again, Chuck Colson talked about how once you come into the White House as president, it is difficult to hear from mainstream people across the board because you're in a bubble. Now, President Trump does better than most presidents we've had in the last 50 years about getting out and, and hearing from people individually. And uh, I've never had a, uh, well, I've served under three presidents and I've never had one that was as keen to know what rank and file members of Congress think about things too. I mean, that's just fantastic. Uh, but when you hear from government doctors over and over who know nothing about the economy and they don't seem to know about the psychological effect of the human on the human animal when they're isolated they're put in solitary even if it's in their own homes you know it's not like uh, put sending a kid to his room and he's got tv stereo <laughs> internet everything uh you need that human contact. And we have been able to get a lot just like you and I are doing here over the internet. But there is, it's why some people say you ought to get, you know, at least so many hugs a day. Uh, we need that interaction. We need that encouragement. And uh, I don't know how the uh, suicide rate is going nationally, but we do hear anecdotal evidence or indications at different places across the country where suicides are up and they're tragic. And even the decision that doctors could not do essential surgeries, and that's, uh, I know in Texas that was decided from Austin, but I've been on conference calls and one of them, a doctor said, you know, I kept telling the guy, yes, he's in terrible pain, but it's not life-threatening and he ended up killing himself. So, oh. You know, it uh, this all of the policies, including the essential care by medical professionals, needs to be looked at. And I know that our governor 
is relaxing some of those requirements. Uh, even today, he's making announcements about further reopening of Texas, including um, health care. Yeah, he is. Actually, on the healthcare subject, that was one of the points that, that Dr. Erickson and Masahi did, a, who are from Kern County, California. They are, run the largest testing uh, medical facility there, and they did a big, long video, which I played on Monday of my show, just describing, uh, I mean, I played little segments of it, but they were describing that, that what you're describing, that people with non-life-threatening but very painful conditions can't get care. Also saying there's been so much fear put out there about this coronavirus and their view unjustified because it has a, you know, 0.03 lethality rate or some number like that. It's just very, very low that even people who are, think they might be experiencing a heart attack, they've had patients tell them, well, I didn't think I should come to the hospital because I thought, what if I catch COVID-19 when I go there? I'm better off staying home. So truly yeah. situations where they should be seeking medical care and they would normally, there's so much fear out there about this virus that it's going to cause people to have deaths from the fr from unrelated uh, health problems. So they're just, I, I don't know. Um, go ahead. We, we know the most vulnerable and you were alluding to that earlier. Uh, so those are the people that should truly have been protected. Uh, with regard to the lethality of the coronavirus, uh, I was looking this morning um, in Texas, the lethality is around, um, let's say it's uh, about two and a half percent, which as I understand it is, is close to the mortality rate for most influenzas uh, that we have seasonally and every season, including this year and next year. Uh, in New York, however, I think it was around 7.6%, which is of great concern. So whatever Texas is doing, it sounds like we're doing well. And whatever New York is doing doesn't sound like they're doing very well in bringing down the lethality rate. That is, is a serious matter. But um, it, those are all things to be taken in consideration. And I know you had concerns too that, uh, gee, should we be so specific in the guidelines for who opens and who doesn't? And, you know, they are, as the president said, guidelines. And so I have no problem with them being specific when they're guidelines, as long as they're not deemed to be the law and uh, you don't start having um, universal sting operations trying to see who's following the guidelines and who isn't. So th those are all matters. They should be guidelines. They should be recommendations, but we should not allow this to bring down our country. You know, Debbie, back after TARP, uh, you know, President uh, Obama's first year in office, we had gone from in 2006, I remember Democrats complaining, you're $160 billion in the red. There's no reason not to be balanced. And they were right. And they won the majority. And I think that was a part of it. So who would have thought uh, just a few years later that we would go from $160 billion in the red to $1.5, $1.6 trillion in the red. And yeah, I know you remember because you've got such a great memory, but our debt got downgraded and that normally causes the rates of our debt that we have to pay to go up. 
And now here in one year, in one month, you know, we're, we're going approaching three trillion in just a month or so. And that's on top of a potential one trillion that was uh, we were looking at having in the red just from the, this annual budget. So we are in grave danger of having debt downgraded that in, could end up causing us to pay more for interest rates than we do for, say, Social, Social Security or Medicare or defense for sure. So these are this is really serious stuff. We've got to look hard at whether just what we're doing is going to enough to bring down our country. And let's face it. Democrats have been leading the charge for many years saying poverty kills. And what is this stoppage of our economy doing? It's creating poverty. It's creating unemployment. It's creating all kinds of problems. And if the Democrats have been right all those years they were talking about poverty kills, then they need to get serious about trying to open up more of what we can to stop poverty from growing. I love the argument, actually, that the way we speak back, because it had so far has seemed in the course of this coronavirus challenge, that the spending is through the roof in Washington, and there's always more being asked for than and Republicans are trying to contain a little bit and trying to direct the spending toward people actually harmed by this virus problem rather than, I don't know, the Kennedy Center. But the Republicans are trying to be a little bit more, more contained. But I love your argument about afterward, we need to say, you know, after the virus threat is gone, uh, which I, I don't think has to be as far away as people talk about, but we have to be able to uh, say, you know, that was a, we created tremendous poverty, poverty by shutting the country down. And the way to bring it back is to bring back our economy, bring back jobs, let people create. I, I hit one more point with you about this spending. Back when Obama was president, we had the big problem in 2008, and so we had a big new budget in 2009. I, I think it, it might have gone up 50% or something in that ballpark. So what happened then, unfortunately, was that spending was high because big problem in the stock market, but then the Democrats began to treat that amount that was that the budget level set in 2009 as the floor, the norm. It isn't like they said, okay, okay, that was a crisis, now we're back down. So we really have that problem here of having people say, well, look what we spent in 2020. Surely this is the new floor. And I mean, do you, do you think that could be a problem? No, I know it'll be a problem because uh, history repeats itself. And if you go back, the Obama administration, after going between 1.5, 1.6 trillion in debt in one year, uh, they were bragging, look how much we've cut more off the budget than any administration in history. Well, yeah, but you're still 1.4 trillion or 1.3 trillion over what we ought to be spending. So like you say, it became the new floor and we have been hovering around 1.1 trillion, uh, 1 trillion in uh, debt in the red every year. For a number of years now uh, and greatly preceding President Trump. But we never, I don't, we, if we got below 1.3 trillion in the red in any years since 2009, uh, it wasn't by much. Uh, yeah. But we were, we have got to get serious about that because you can bankrupt a nation. Look at the Soviet Union. 
you can only spend your money so long that you don't have before things come down. And I hear a lot of people saying they're just printing so much money. Well, after TARP, some of us had a visit with the Fed and I asked a simple question, well, how much more money are we printing now than we did, you know, say 10 years or so ago? And I was told we're, we're not printing really any more money, not much more at all. It's, and I said, but there's so much more money in the system. Yeah. And I was told, and I quote, oh, well, we couldn't possibly print all the money we are creating. That was a wake up. <laughs> Holy cow. We're not even bothered to print it anymore. It's now just new digits in the overall system, but there's no printed money to back it up. I mean. Uh, oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> incomprehensible. It's ethereal or something out there. Okay. Well, I know you. Uh, we Bernanke told us back at the time, we are not monetizing our debt. We are not buying our own debt. Well, it turns out uh, they were providing money to a third party is what some of us found out um, and letting the third party buy our money or buy our debt with our money. So that was a little bit disingenuous to have heard that. Yeah. You know, I feel like I say this every time I talk to you. One more question. Okay. I swear. And then, but that, well, first of all, I am generally speaking, you're saying that you think the tone of the uh, president's guidelines is about right. I mean, I, I don't, we're not going to go through it page by page. I yeah. turned it out and read it. I mean, you think it's about the level where it should be. So. Oh, I think it is. I don't have a problem with it being specific since they are guidelines. If they were more than guidelines, if they were orders from the president, then yes, I would have a huge problem with them. But since they're guidelines, and he's made clear that's what they are, and even uh, you know to the point that he can disagree with a governor when the governor opens things up, but he's not issuing a federal mandate to stop it. He just states his disagreement, and I think that's fine. Uh, but let the states and localities make their own decisions. That's a point I want to get to. I, I'm concerned, as we're talking about kind of woven through our discussion, the left is going to try to hang this, uh, the coronavirus problem, our response, the damage to the economy around President Trump's neck and say this is all his fault. I think the more he can signal to America, you know, I can do guidelines because I have these great experts here, but it's up to every state. And ultimately, it really is up to the governors and then whatever they choose to do uh, on down the ranks throughout their states. But that, that's the main thing I would love to have is, is a clear, this is the governors, this is on their or on their watch, on their desk, right. what they do. Because then we are closer to our own, we American people are closer to our own governors. We can put more pressure there to say, as we're trying to do in Texas, open up, this has got to end. Right. Okay, but that wasn't my last question. This really is. Okay, here, and that was this. I've heard about different groups in Washington, uh, one from Heritage Foundation, one is uh, Steve Moore and others uh, created a group that's Save Our Economy or Save Our Country or something like that. So are you aware of other, I mean, what they're trying to get at is in this astonishingly, relatively speaking, short period, eight weeks, we have gone through an, a, an amazing period in our, our country, amazing harm to our economy, a lot of things turned on their heads. And so people are saying, we've got to do something. We've got to try to, you know, we've got to look at all the aspects of these of these issues, all the challenges we have to face about spending and getting the economy working. 
Are you part of anything like that? Are you encouraging that? Are you are you involved in trying to help come up with some plan? I don't know whether that'd be the kind of thing you would do or not. Well, yeah, I mean, there. I'm not part of a, a group other than members of Congress that is pushing, but we have got to reopen more of our economy uh, because the consequence of letting our debt get out of hand where we can't get back on top of it uh, would lead to dramatic poverty. It would lead to having a totalitarian government take over. And uh, it, it basically opens the door for Orwellian type totalitarianism uh, to take effect. And so in the loss of life, there's no country that has ever brought about the loss of life that communist countries have, uh, particularly the Soviet Union and China. Uh, so, yeah, some estimate 20 to 30 million deaths uh, on the hands of Stalin, but Mao, maybe twice that many or more. So we don't really know for sure. We just know it was tens of millions. So it is serious. And we have had the best government that God could ever allow any country to have. Many of the founders said that as much when they came out of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. They it, they thought they were, they felt the hand of God. You know, they came to a, an agreement that is made for the longest lasting founding document of any country ever. And so uh, it has to be protected. It, we've already set a record for length under this, this uh, constitution and it bears more protection now perhaps than we have ever provided. Uh, we cannot move down this road any further toward a totalitarian socialism. And that is a great and profound note on which to end. Congressman Louis Gohmert, thank you so much for taking time to join me today. Thank you, Debbie. Great being with you. Great to see you, sir. Okay, stay in the fight. <laughs> That's okay. choice. Okay, so friends, we are just so grateful that uh, Congressman Gohmert was available today. I urge you to uh, follow him if you don't on any social media. Follow his, he is the, among the most clear thinking because of his background as a lawyer, as a judge, and his immersion in the importance of the Constitution, one of the most clear thinking and articulate and passionate defenders of America and, and what this country is, which is the whole reason I do my show, is to defend the extraordinary, I always say, the most unique experiment in human liberty ever to bless this earth. I want to wrap up the show today by telling one other quick story. We'll talk about, and you know, it's kind of funny, as I've been saying the last several weeks, all we can really talk about, it seems like, is the corona, uh, coronavirus. But I do want to tell you a quick story about homeschooling and just, the, uh, you know, an interesting thing is happening right now. Because the public schools are closed, so everybody, everybody's homeschooling now, and the school districts around the country are providing, uh, you know, a wide range of assistance. Some basically nothing, and some are giving kids some online sources, and some people are stepping up, and some people who do homeschool are trying to share with other parents who are now dealing with homeschooling for the first time. So there's renewed attention in a lot of quarters, a lot of um, places that we have children being educated in their homes and educated by parents who as part and parcel of teaching you know american history and economics and government uh, 
are imparting their values. So it's a really interesting time. It turned out there was an article, Harvard uh, University put out, which can only be called a hit piece. Um, and it was published by a woman named Elizabeth Bartholet in the Harvard Magazine. And she just basically came out and said, we have to fight homeschooling in this country. She, we have to, she didn't say outlaw it, but she really went on the very much the offense saying homeschooling is very dangerous for children. Homeschooling allows children to be trained by just their own parents. And these kids may end up not having, in her view, a healthy respect for the diversity of views, diversity of, of ideas. You know, these kids will be closed-minded. They will not be as able to integrate into society and to find their way in society. These, uh, this whole idea that children who are homeschooled are deprived was her theme. And I got to wondering if... I don't know when she wrote this article. Maybe she wrote it way ahead of time. But I got to wondering if it got either that she wrote it or it got so much attention because there are actually now more parents for the first time in a long time in our country on day-to-day -day basis having interaction with their kids and finding out what the kids are learning in school, finding out what they've been talking about. I can imagine parents saying, you know, they told you what about George Washington? They said, what about our founding? You could imagine parents for the first time engaged in homeschooling, realizing, wow, I didn't know the schools were teaching my kids this stuff. But back to her article, she's basically saying that kids coming from homeschooling are gonna end up with, um, you know, unable to function in life and, and unaware of the diversity of views and not having all the social values of modern society, blah, blah, blah. So she, it's really a very, very harsh slapdown. But the great thing was, and why I wanna mention it, and I'm closing out the show this topic today, but I want to mention that, you know, I, growing up and in my life growing up, I, I didn't know anyone who homeschooled. I, we did not, I, I went to public school and then, you know, private school for college and law school. But I mean, I, I didn't ever know homeschoolers and I did not have any, any perception of, you know, what it involves to really homeschool your kids. It wasn't until we moved to the state of Texas in the year 2000 my husband and I came here in 2000 and our kids were still, you know, they were, they also, I, I never homeschooled. I, I never even thought about it, but they, well, I appreciate they got a good quality education at the school where they went to around here. But I'm beginning to realize in this battle to take back our country from leftism, in this battle to help instill in the next generation of children you know, what America was founded on, what America means to the world, what the ideas of our founding, the depth and importance of those ideas, and the brilliance of the people who were, at the time, the noted philosophers that our founders had actually read and contemplated their ideas and decided what they thought of. And so the, our founders had taken those ideas, these, you know, over the millennia ideas by deep thinkers and they had a chance to create a country based on the ideas they learned and based on what they thought would be really important in order to have a country like America be created, be successful, be sustainable, to use a modern word, and have the highest commitment to the individual right to freedom that was possible consistent with having an ordered liberty and ordered society. So I think that those ideas are instilled in 
homeschool by homeschoolers in homeschooled children far more than they are ever instilled in the public schools and even in the colleges. I mean, here's this woman at Harvard complaining about the lack of diversity and viewpoint when college campuses, Harvard included, and other Ivy League schools and just other colleges are at this era in our history filled with socialists, filled with people who are the economics professors, the government professors, the history professors, who are very, very supportive of communist style government, socialist government, very driven to inspire young people to hate the idea of America, to hate the idea of individual liberty, to hate the idea of a society rooted in faith in God and a, and a society rooted in Judeo-Christian values. Colleges and high schools, and even lower than that around this country, have been really infiltrated by the American left happened over decades. We didn't realize it was happening. It just kind of, we have now more conservatives alert to that than we had in a long time. But the schools had become overwhelmed with leftists, leftist thinking, which is, which by leftist thinking, I mean disdain for the idea of freedom, of free markets, of capitalism, of the idea of a country rooted in religious faith, of the idea of the importance and the beauty of the First Amendment, all of the freedoms guaranteed, all these ideas are antithetical to the leftist mindset. The leftist mindset is collectivist. It is government is it's oriented around government control of society. It likes and seeks more control over society. So I'm getting around to saying I think that this Harvard article and other disdain for homeschoolers comes in large part from their perception that you know we're trying to in, instill these educators are trying to instill left-wing values, you know, collectivist, socialist, communist ideas in America's youth from kindergarten through grad school. And we have these homeschoolers who are getting in the way. These homeschoolers are instilling these values. We're trying to beat out of the kids. We're trying to ignore. Homeschoolers play a vital role in this country, even though I didn't homeschool my own kids, I wasn't homeschooled, and most of my friends, I, I only know a few people who did homeschool their kids. But as I've talked with them more and more, I've realized that the homeschool movement has come, has come a long way from formerly having been just largely driven by, you know, a religious faith, want people who wanted to have a faith-based education in their home, want to instill their, their faith, mainly Christian values in their children. But homeschooling is growing in this country because more parents are beginning to appreciate again, to newly appreciate the extraordinary greatness of America and the idea of a country rooted in liberty. And they recognize their children will never learn this at school and that too many American kids are not learning this in school. So the homeschooling movement is growing as the left grows more as strangling control over the education system, homeschooling is growing as a means to counter that, to instill in children our own children and as they grow up into young adults, love of freedom, love of America, love of the idea of America. That's really what is at the core of this Harvard professor complaining about homeschooling. She really created quite a stir. A lot of articles written in response just saying uh, all, all sorts of wonderful points. But I wanted to say I, I don't usually talk about homeschooling on my show very much and it's you know not something I pursued in my life but I can see its place in the kind of American political conversation to be a force that pushes back against 
the leftism that has invaded and really overtaken most college campuses, the high school curriculum, which your kids learn in high school and junior high school, elementary school, what they learn from the public education system is often very left wing. And so this woman is complaining about it. And I especially think it's interesting because right now everybody's a homeschooler now. I mean, everyone's having a homeschool and maybe it's an opportunity for more parents to decide, you know, I think I kind of like this. I think I want to help shape my kids' views. They might be learning things that their kids uh, tell them that they don't have, uh, that they didn't even realize was being taught to them. And of all places, Harvard, one of the bastions of leftism in this country, academia, intolerant of conservative ideas, intolerant of religion, intolerant of the idea that religion plays a central role in creating values and creating our country, intolerant of the idea that freedom and free markets and capitalism are the best blessing for anyone on earth, intolerant of all those things. So Harvard, intolerant of the goodness of America, criticizing homeschoolers who are many of them in large part trying to instill in their children love of America. Um, the articles, there are a bunch of articles up on our website, americacanbetalk.org. Uh, you can read some of the responses people had to this Harvard hit piece about homeschooling. I thought it was actually, um, it was a great topic to close out today. I, you know, I talk about the coronavirus so very much in this show and we have to talk about it. It's monumentally important, uh, but the other things are going on too. And so the need to defend homeschooling to newly appreciate for people who didn't do homeschooling, the value it contributes to our American culture and society for the very, for, for the vast majority of homeschoolers or conscientious, serious, substantive teachers is a blessing. You're gonna have a cadre of kids coming out of homeschooling who are going to be more committed to preserving America than a lot of their compatriots, their peers coming to the public school system. And that, my friends, is the rest of the show for today. I want to turn, as I always do, at the end of every show to tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. We started today talking about the coronavirus protests and the actual arrest, Laredo, Texas, police sting operation infiltrating a nails and eyelashes home salon operation and making arrests. Raleigh, North Carolina Police Department tweet, protesting is not an essential activity. Californians flocking to the beaches in defiance of governor's stay-at-home orders. I love that spirit. We're not staying home. Constitutional rights do not disappear in any crisis. Civil disobedience is honorable when the laws being protested are wrong. And number two, law enforcement is losing the people's respect. Government is losing the consent of the governed. President Trump and Attorney General Barr must act to temper the would-be tyrants who do not understand number one and number two above. And on Congress's sentiment, and Honorable Louis Gohmert speaking with us, um, the House Freedom Caucus uh, must continue to speak out. Freedom must be front and center in the American recovery plans. The White House reopening guidelines are very specific and they're very limiting. I don't know, do they credit enough weeks of changing facts on the ground and conflicting medical opinions about how to respond to this virus? I urge you again, if you didn't hear the show on Monday, go back to my Monday show and listen to the segment in which I played a uh, very short portion of a brilliant video presentation given by two doctors in California, Dr. Daniel Erickson and Artil Masahi. Both of them were trying to say, 
we did not react properly, well, fully, the way we should have to this virus. They aren't criticizing Fauci, but they're saying we've got to change direction. You got to listen to that whole tape. I'm, well, I am questioning on the White House guidelines if they they could be more open, but getting a second opinion is timeless wisdom for anyone facing a dangerous health diagnosis. Why hasn't it been followed by President Trump for the national diagnosis? Multiple highly credentialed medical ex experts say, end the shutdown. And the last thing in Harvard attacking homeschooling, there's a surge of homeschooling during school closures. And this does this scare the Harvard elites? Children won't be exposed to a divergence of views seriously, really, as if Harvard represents or teaches a divergence of views. Harvard's antagonism toward homeschooling is transparent and it is absurd. A window on leftist commitment to use our schools as instruments of leftist indoctrination. There is little genuine divergence of views taught in most public schools and too commonly what is taught is anti-Christian, anti-American, leftist ideology. And this just may be a pandemic silver lining awakening to the indoctrination purposes of the left. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. You can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. You know what to do on social media. Do all of the above. Please like, share, subscribe, comment. Love the American political conversation about preserving this country. If you enjoy listening to the show, go to the website americacanwetalk.org. Hit the subscribe button. You get the once a week email from me every Friday with links to the stories we talked about and links to articles we've written. And also on that homepage, you can donate to this show. My show survives entirely on donations from listeners. So if you love this show, you'd like to help keep it on air, please consider making a one-time or a recurring donation to keep America Can We Talk rolling because I don't ever want to talk, stop talking about preserving this extraordinary, precious country, America. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This was America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you hear us now?